Father God, uh, in preparation this week, you have been very gracious to me in helping me understand the the frailty and weakness of my own flesh, the inadequacy that, that myself and, and really all humanity has with dealing with the realities we're going to look at today. They are so far beyond. And I feel that. And my prayer right now, Father, is that we look at one of the deepest most powerful, most gripping realities in the universe at the beginning of the Gospel of John, that you would be gracious to us, that you would, by your Spirit, Father, bring our hearts and our minds up to where you are, that we would seek the things that are above, and that you would show us what cannot be seen by the flesh alone, realities that are far too great for us to understand without your help, Father. I pray that you would do that today by your merciful and gracious spirit. In the name of Jesus, amen. So the gospel according uh, to John begins like this. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things, all things were made through him. And without him was not anything made that was made. Some of the most shocking words in all of Scripture come here right at the beginning of the Gospel of John where John, <laughs> to kick off this gospel, presents realities that are so far beyond the understanding of a human mind. In this section at the beginning of John's gospel, it's often referred to as the prologue. It's the, the, the designed, really, by John to set the table for the narrative and the exposition and the teaching and everything that's going to follow in this book. John wants to get us in the right frame of mind before we even read a word of Jesus' life on the earth. He wants us to know something. John doesn't begin the gospel account that he has for us, the biography of Jesus' life and in ministry like the other gospels do. He doesn't begin at the start of Jesus' ministry. He doesn't begin even at Jesus' birth in the world. <clears throat> he doesn't even begin with a extensive genealogy that goes all the way back to Abraham or, or Adam. John begins here at the beginning of literally everything. Before anything else ever existed. So John is one of the closest people to Jesus when he walked on the earth. He was, he was right next to him most of Jesus' ministry and he's telling us that for me to tell you the story of Jesus, for me to tell you about this man, I need to go all the way back and begin where Moses began when he was writing Genesis. I need to go back to the beginning. And John tells us here at the very start that in the beginning, before anything else existed, there was a reality that was called the Word. That's what he calls this reality, the Word. And this reality we will find 
throughout the, the gospel and really before the end of this chapter is none other than Jesus Christ. He's referring to Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the word in these three verses at the beginning of John. And so everything we read about the word, everything we read about the word is 100% true about the man that John knew and that historians know as Jesus of Nazareth. John is going to paint a picture of the word in this text of Christ, which is astonishing. It is staggering to the mind. It is simply beyond our capacity to fully comprehend. But if I can be real with you, it is so critical and fundamental for us to believe. We have to believe this. We have to know it to be true, even if we can't fully comprehend it. And so what I want to do with our time today while we have this passage up is I want to present five observations, five truths, five things we can discern from these three verses. And I, I want us to see what John sees here. And the fifth observation is really going to lean on some of the stuff he's saying here and, and afterwards and going to tell us why all of these observations are so critical for us to understand. The fifth observation will explain to us why is it that John is pulling back the veil on eternity past? Is he doing it for the sake of novelty? Is he just trying to be clever? Is he doing it to entertain us because this is exciting? Going back this far is exciting? Is he doing it just for historic purposes? Or is he doing it because he recognizes that we need to see this? We need to see this clearly. And when we do see it, when we do understand what is inside these three verses, it will change our lives forever. That's what John is doing. This John didn't need to begin his gospel this way. He could have began it any way he wanted to. I mean, he was right there. He could have said, one morning me and Jesus were eating fish, and he told me about this story about him, and, and then just went from there. He doesn't start there. He doesn't start anywhere but here. He knows that we must see this. And so if you have your Bibles, and I hope that you do, because I want you to see it with your own eyes. I don't want you to take my word for it. I don't want you to take my, my word for anything I say, ever. If it's in here, you need to believe it. You need to see it, and you need to believe it. And so if you could grab your Bible, open to John 1, verses 1 and 3. And as we go through these observations, I want you to see them in the text. Observation number one, John says here, in the beginning was the Word, which means that the Word is eternal. When the beginning started, whatever that is, the Word was already there. He never came into being. He was there in the beginning. And like we said, the Word is Jesus Christ. Verse 14 and verse 18 will tell us of this chapter, this is where he is, which means something incredible. It means that Jesus Christ, think about this, never had a beginning. He never began. He is uncreated. He is self-existent. In philosophical terms, we would refer to this as absolute reality. And that's what John is saying here. This is what Jesus is. It's a shocking claim. A man that <laughs> walked on the earth, ate fish, a man that got sick, that slept, that laughed, 
and that cried, though he was in the flesh, was actually this reality, this eternal word that never came into existence. And I think we just need to reflect on that for a moment. If you were to go back in time, like, I mean, go back as far as you can, as far as you can conceive of, all the way back, you would never arrive before Christ. You would never arrive before him. Colossians 1 tells us that Christ is before all things. There is no before Christ. Which means that I can't even say, like I can't even say on an intellectual level, there was nothing before Christ because nothing is a thing. All I can say is he is before everything, everything, nothing, everything, all of it. So when time and space in the entire universe came into existence, the word Christ Jesus himself had already been there for ages without number, for eternity. That's observation one, and it is staggering. John is telling us here in verse one of this passage that Christ never came into, begin, into being. He has simply always been there as this eternal reality called the word. And if this is starting to make your mind warp a little bit, it's going to get more difficult as we go on. I apologize. I wrote this sermon four times this week. <laughs> Observation two. The word was with God. So after telling us that this word has existed from all eternity, John says that he wasn't alone in this existence. The word was with God. He says it actually twice here. He says it at the end of verse one, and then he has... It says it again there as its own sentence, he was in the beginning with God. He wants us to know this. He doesn't want us to miss this, that in the beginning, the word was with God. Before the universe came into existence, there were these two personal beings, persons. One was the word, who is Christ, and the other is God. John calls him God, and they were together. And this fact is extraordinarily profound if you think about it, because what it means is that before there was anything in creation, there was a relationship between the Word and between God. There was a relationship. Before anything existed, there was a relationship. It means personal relationships are not a product of people or culture or communities or creation at any point. Personal relationships have always existed because God and the Word have always been in a personal relationship with each other. There was never a time when that didn't exist. And although we will never fully understand this kind, this depth of this relationship the Word has with God, John, in verse 14, does his best to describe this relationship as the kind of a relationship between a father and his son. That's how he describes this later and throughout this book. This is how Jesus self-describes the relationship. He's saying that this relationship, something, this relationship between the Word and God is something like the relationship between a father and, and his son. And in verse 18, he goes even deeper than that. He literally says that the son is, is at the father's side, is in the bosom of his father for all eternity. And this phrase in the Greek, in the bosom of his father, is a 
statement at that time of remarkable love and affection. It's, it's uh, imagine uh, a son on a father's lap or a son in the father's embrace or uh, a son where the father's protecting him or keeping him safe or they're just hugging each other, showing affection to each other. That's the reality that John is presenting us when he says, the word in the beginning, the word was with God. <clears throat> it's this kind of intimacy. It's a kind of intimacy that is hard for us to conceive in and of itself. But even beyond that, to think that it has always existed boggles the mind. It never came into being. Like the son wasn't born one day and the father said, this is great. I can love somebody. This has always been, Scripture tells us the son was eternally begotten, which means that he, he never came into existence at a certain point. He's always existed in this way at the father's side. And the father has always loved his son, and the son has always loved his father. It is an unbroken and intimate love between these, these two people, these two persons. And it existed before anything else was in creation. That's observation number two. The word was with God. Observation number three is that the word is not only with God, but astonishingly, the word is God. Though distinct persons, they are not two separate beings. They are one being. That's tough. We should find this difficult to understand. We should find this unsettling that we can't understand this reality fully. How there could be one divine being of the same substance, essence, mind, yet within that being, individual, distinct persons. And if it seems crazy to us, you're not alone. It's wild. We need to understand, though, that the only kind of God the human mind could actually fully comprehend is a, is a God that came from the human mind. And that's not this God. This one God that John is holding out to us is not a human invention. He is not the product of some sort of human plan. Uh, John is not inventing anything here, and he's not going to look at ultimate reality, absolute reality, and sugarcoat it so that it can roll around in the, the shallow tide pool of human intellect. He's not going to do that. He's going to tell us something about God. He wants us to know the real God, and the real God is far beyond our comprehension, and he refuses to pull any and he punches. So both the Father and the Son are one God. And this astonishing reality will always remain beyond our full comprehension. But the Bible, because God is gracious, does not leave us completely in the dark about how this works. There is glimpses of this throughout Scripture, of how this actually functions, how this works. It does not give us full understanding, but we get a glimpse of how it is that the word can be both with God and God at the same exact time. For example, Colossians 1.18 says that Christ is referred to as the image of the invisible God. 
And Hebrews 1 talks about him being the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. And John knows this because he's called Christ the Word. And the Word, I mean, he could have used any name that made sense and worked for this to describe this reality, but he, he set his, his heart and his mind on this word in the Greek, logos. And logos in the Greek literally means word. It means statement. It means a message. It means something that is communicated or revealed or told. And what those verses in Colossians and Hebrews and what the word logos tell us is that from all eternity, Christ, the word, was a display of, a telling of, a manifesting of the nature and the glory of God. That's who Christ is. God is the kind of being that when his radiance, when the radiance of his glory and his beauty and his worth are displayed and when they are imaged to be seen and enjoy, it is so real that it stands forth as a second person. That's the kind of God we're dealing with. And it's not a new being because the image is still God. It's likened to an eternal reflection of God's infinite, intrinsic worth, beauty, and glory. That's what John means when he says the word. And from all eternity, God in displaying his own nature, his own glory, like a father would display his glory through his son, yet remain identical in essence, in substance. That's what we're seeing here in John 1. The father is the original The Son is the image, yet both are eternal. Both have always been. This didn't just happen one point in the ancient past. It has always been this way. And this is what John means by saying the Word, um, that the Word was with God and God at the same time. It is a stunning mystery. It is a stunning mystery that God alone is uncreated, and yet He has never been alone. And again, if we find this hard to understand or wrap our minds around, we are on the right path, actually. If you find this confusing and complex, you're looking at it rightly. There are plenty of gods in this world that can be fully comprehended. Ours is not one of them. So observation number three is that the word is God. Jesus Christ from all eternity is truly and really God. He is the radiance of the glory of God, not a separate being, the same being, distinct person. Observation number four is that (coughs) apart from the word, nothing in all of creation can exist. We see that here in verse three, where John says clearly, all things were made through him, through the word. And without him, was not anything made that was made. It's hard to be any clearer than this. This not only means that the word who is Christ Jesus was essential in the creation of the universe, uh, that everything in it, every single thing in it, whether you're thinking about subatomic particles that no human eye has ever seen, or whether you are thinking of super galaxies that we barely have the language to describe, all of that came from and through Christ. 
But he's also saying, by making this statement, John's also saying that nothing can exist apart from the Word. It's not just a single moment, and then he stepped back, and everything's rolling. Nothing can exist every millisecond apart from the Word. Colossians 1, again, helps us with this in saying, in Him, in Christ, that is, in the Word, all things hold together. This is what Paul says in Colossians 1. All things hold together in Christ. And Hebrews 1 says, the entire universe is held together by the word of his power. And he's talking about Christ, which is exactly what John wants us to feel here. Nothing exists apart from, from the word, from Christ. That's what absolute reality is. We're going back to that philosophical term. The entire universe and everything you can conceive of within it supernovas in all their glory and sand particles underneath our boots and everything in between, anything that I didn't include on the sides, all of that is secondary contingent reality. When I use the word contingent, I mean it is depending every moment of its existence on the main thing, absolute reality, which is Christ Jesus Christ, the, the entire universe, every millisecond depends on Christ for its existence. Christ depends on no one and nothing. He is simply there. You get a picture of Christ and everything else that is in existence, and, 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 and you're thinking about created reality there, and the cosmos and all that's inside of it. And in that picture, if you look at it, you see the cosmos as a frail, fleeting, bursting bubble on the surface of the immensity of the Pacific Ocean. That's the difference. And that's not even adequate. Like to say, I've used this analogy before, the universe is like an acorn in the hand of Christ. And that gives the universe too much credit. Way too much credit. It is nothing in comparison to Christ, which leads us to observation number five. Although the word, the uncreated absolute reality, compared to the universe, that the universe is like dust in the scales, Isaiah 40 specifically says that next to God we are less than nothing. I mean, how is that even possible? But he's straining for words. We are like emptiness next to God. That's true. Though that is true, though that reality and that delta is true between creation and Christ, John 1.14 tells us something incredible has happened. Something beyond our wildest imaginations he says that the eternal word who was with God and is God and created all things became flesh and entered into creation. We got a slide for this. John 1.14. And the word became <laughs> flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. 
The response John wants from us when we read this line is, how in the world is that possible? How in the world could uncreated absolute reality on which everything in creation hangs enter into creation, take on flesh? Like, how is that even possible? It, it's, it is, and we could say this, absurd that this would happen. It's wild that the word from all eternity becomes flesh, enters the very creation he holds together by the word of his power, and dwells among us. I mean, if you really get the first four observations, if you don't get the first four observations, the fifth one's going to be nothing. But if you get the first four observations, if you see the immensity and the glory in those first four facts from John 1, 1 through 3, this fifth one should seem impossible. It should seem impossible. That the Word who is God and with God in eternal love, unbroken, infinite love for all eternity would do this. And the reason he did this, the reason this actually happened is actually found in the same verse, verse 14. It says that only through the Word becoming flesh we can see his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father. This is why. John is telling us why the Word became flesh. This is why he did it. He's like, I know. <laughs> if you read the first three verses of this book, this should seem impossible to you. But he really did come. He really did come. I saw him with my own eyes. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and he did that to show us the glory of the Father. John, in writing his gospel, like all the authors of Scripture, know how critical it is for us to see God, for us to see the Father in his glory, because they know, and you know, how broken we really are. The human soul was designed to see and enjoy God. That's why humans were designed. That's why we exist. We were made to know God, and we were made to show God to the world. That's what it means to be made in His image. Images honor and display the glory and the worth of the one they're imaging, the value of who they image. So to be made in the image of God ultimately means that we were made to know and show him to this world. And yet, according to Romans 1, at the very root of all of our brokenness, all of our sin, all of the ways that we fail to do that well is a refusal, a rejection of the glory of God and a refusal to do this very thing that our image, the image of God that we've been given was intended to do. I want you to look at this in Romans 1.19 starting with verse 19 through 23, Paul's going to describe our brokenness at a fundamental level. Paul is talking about all of humanity, and he's talking about why, why is there sin in the world? Like what at the bottom of all of the, the mistakes and the failures and the evil that are in this world, what is the root cause? What is at the source of it? And he says this, starting with verse 19, what can be known about God is plain to them, plain to us, plain to humanity. Because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, 
namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that are made, that have been made. He says they are without excuse. We should know God by looking at creation. Any hang-up we have with that is not on his end. Objectively, the created world says there is a God. Our own persons, our desires, our delights, the fact that we smile and laugh and cry, the fact that we have vested interests and hopes, all of those things point to a personal being that made all of this, that is invisible to us, but we can see his divine attributes inside the reality of cre- the created universe. And so he says we are without excuse. For although we knew God through creation, they did not honor God as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. And then they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Paul is telling us here that all of creation exists for one main purpose, one central purpose, and that is to show the glory of God. That is to show his existence, his reality, his beauty, his worth, his love, and his affection. Created reality communicates invisible attributes of a God we can't see. It tells us there is an absolute reality that all of this hangs on. And he has eternal power. He has a divine nature. And that's why God created the universe through the word, to show that. We saw that in in John 1 earlier. But what has happened at a fundamental level, what has happened at the deepest part of our being is that God has been ignored by humanity. They did not honor him as God, or give thanks to him, Paul says. But instead, they became infatuated with the things that he made, with created reality. Humanity exchanged the glory and beauty and worth of the immortal God for mere images of things that he created. And in this tragic exchange, he says, human beings became fools with darkened hearts. Darkened hearts. The greatest problem in the world the greatest problem we all have at an individual level, the one in which all of our sins, all the sins and evils in this world arise from this one central problem, and it is that we have disabused ourselves from our maker. We don't want him anymore. We just want his stuff. The very things designed to show the glory of the Father have become our objects of worship. And this is the fountainhead of every sin, every act of selfishness, every evil deed. It all comes from this main source. We have sold ourselves into slavery in the surface of things that are infinitely less worthy and beautiful than their creator. And therefore, Scripture will tell us we are not only guilty before God and liable to his justice and his wrath, but the Bible will tell us, and it does right here, our hearts have been darkened. We can't see him and feel him the way we ought to. We have been blinded by our own desire to worship the creature 
and our own sinfulness, and we cannot see the glory and worth of God. We can't see the Father. We can't see the Father. And this is why John 1.14 is one of the most important verses in the world. The Word became flesh. In that verse, the Word, the eternal Word, enters into the depths of our sin, our iniquity, our brokenness, and does this to show us the Father that we so desperately need to see. And this is exactly what Christ accomplished in his life, death, and resurrection on this earth. This is why John wrote his gospel. John wants to show us the Father. He said last week, if you were here last week, I wrote this so that you would believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you would have life. He wants us to see the Father. He wants us to see why Jesus came, and we need to see him. We need to see him, um, because without seeing him, we are completely blind to the greatest treasure in the universe. And so in order to remove that blindness, the word not only needed to take on flesh and enter creation, but he would need to be cut off from the love that he had with his father and die in our place. In order to undo the trauma that we just saw in Romans 1 of our rebellion, of our disinterest in God, of our rejection of his father, in order for that to happen, Christ, the eternal word, would have to experience the full penalty for our rejection of God. He'd have to take that on to himself. And what this means is that without the cross of Christ, without what Jesus did on that cross, you and I would never, ever, ever, ever in 10 trillion ages see the glory of God. We wouldn't. So he came. Absolute reality, uncreated, always existing, takes on flesh. Someone who had for unending ages known real, true love with his father had to be suddenly and violently severed from that love in order for you and I to be welcomed in. It had to happen. And we know this is true because Jesus, hours before going to the cross, would pray for all of his disciples and for everyone that would believe because of them, which includes every person in this room who trusts in Christ. Jesus prayed for you. Would you like to hear his prayer? I want to. John 17. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am. To see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me 
may be in them and I in them. That is an astonishing passage. And to be perfectly honest with you, it is very hard for me to believe, given all of my sin, given all of my brokenness, given all the ways that I fail to meet standards that are good and right, but I fail to meet them, it's hard for me to believe this, that Jesus is praying this for me and for you. Listen to what his voice here. I desire. <laughs> Jesus desires for you to be with him forever. He desires it. He's not neutral about it. He's not come, if you like. He says, I want you to be with me and I want you to see the glory of my Father, the glory that God the Father has given me from all eternity. That's why I came. Jesus came for this moment, the cross. He came so that we would know and experience the very love that his Father has always had for him. That is ridiculous. That is ridiculous. And on the cross, Jesus prays this, and then hours later, he'll, he'll be hanged on a Roman cross, suffocate to death, as the justice of God is poured out on him for our sins, and he will guarantee that everything in this verse is going to happen. He will make it happen with his own blood. And if, if you if you've even understood or even seen anything that John has, has talked about in those four or five observations, if you've seen any of that um, this morning, this fact that this prayer is reality and will be a reality for us should amaze you. It should amaze you. And it, a failure for it to amaze you is not because it is not really there it is evidence of the very thing that Christ came to fix. The word who has existed with God in perfect, unbroken, infinite love for all eternity takes on human flesh, infiltrates our sin and rebellion by entering creation, the very creation he upholds by the word of his power every millisecond of its existence, and then he goes to the cross where he will be severed from that love from the Father in order to pay for the penalty of our sin. In order that, get this, we will be carried into that same loving embrace in the bosom of the Father that has existed from before the universe came into being. That's why Christ did this, so that we would share that love. This should not be. It shouldn't be this way. And we should step back and just ask, what kind of love is this? Like, what kind of love would need to be in the heart of Christ for this verse to be true? Given everything I know about myself, given every, every way that I've fallen short this week from being the kind of, of father or husband or, or whatever it is, employee, what kind of love is this? 
that he would come all this way, take on the frailties of human existence, and then die so that his nail-scarred hands could scoop me up and you up and bring us into the presence of his Father so that we could taste the same love that he has always known from his dad, from his Father in heaven. In a few moments, we're going to worship through, um, we're going to worship Christ, the eternal word of God, through the act of communion, through what, what we refer to as the Lord's Supper. Um, in the night that, that Christ prayed this prayer, literally moments from this time, from when he prayed this, Jesus took bread and he took a cup and he gave them to his disciples and he told them this is his body and this is his blood given for them. And the reason he gave them that before going to the cross is so that by when he gave his body and his blood on the cross, they would know that he did that to secure whatever he was praying for in his prayer. And this is part of it. This is guaranteed because of what he did. That one day, one day we will be where he is. Do your best to just conceive of it. One day, this will fade away and we will be with him forever. Forever. To see his glory and to enjoy it. And so if your faith is in Christ, if you trust Jesus, he made this promise for you. And this is true about you. It's going to happen. One day we will be with the Son and the Father forever. This is why John wrote his gospel. John wants us to know this. He doesn't want us to, to hope that this is true alone. He doesn't want us just to, maybe it is, maybe it isn't. I'm just going to guess that it is and say that I believe. He wants us to know this. He wants it to be a reality anchored in our souls that before the universe existed, there was a father and there was a son and they loved each other deeply, more deeply than we can possibly conceive of with our human minds. They loved each other. And yet the son said, I'm going to go down and fix this. Takes on human flesh in order that we, who have all rejected the father, and said, I'd rather have your stuff so that we could taste the very love that he has had for all eternity with his Father. This is why the Gospel of John exists. We need to believe this. Not only today, as we look at this text and every Sunday as we continue, God willing, but by the end of this book, we need to know. We just need to know this in the depths of our souls that this is what happened and it happened for the glory of God and because there is a kind of love that God, the Father, and His Son have for us that is beyond our ability to comprehend. And that was what was at play when the Word became flesh. Let's pray. Father God, there is no way 
that physical words from a man talking about this, whether we're talking about John or me 2,000 years later, can cause us to know this truth. There's just no way. We need you to come. We need you to do what Paul says in Ephesians 1, enlighten the eyes of our hearts. They've been darkened by our sin. They've been darkened by our unbelief. They've, they've become blind and callous in our addiction to creation. And we need you to cut away those calluses, Father God, and shine the light of your glory into the depths of our souls where nobody else has been, where there is brokenness that nobody else knows. Shine that light there that we might see the glory of Christ Jesus, glory as of a son, the only son from the Father. Help us to see that now as we worship, as we receive communion, Father God. Reveal that to the depths of our hearts, I ask in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.